If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the 27th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And when you found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 27, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can give honor to the word of the Lord as we hear it read this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, Keep all these commands that I give you today. When you've crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. A land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with field stones, and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones you have set up. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that once again, we, your people, can come together around your word. Lord, in a way that's not possible when we are not together in your presence. So we thank you for the opportunity, and we pray, uh, Spirit of God, once again, that you would be the teacher, and that only what's real and true about you and what's really able to bring transformation in our lives, which is your truth joined with your spirit, we pray that that and that alone will be what happens uh, among us in these next uh, moments together. So we Commit ourselves and submit ourselves now to the truth and the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. So chapters 27 and chapter 28 in so many ways remind us, along with a lot of other passages in Deuteronomy that we have encountered as we've journeyed through this book, they remind us of this, that God is, is for his people. God is is for his people. God is on our side. God wants his people to flourish. God wants his people to thrive. God is our greatest champion. Truly he is. And yet it's easy for us to doubt that. I know I've lived the Christian life long enough to have personally experienced that doubt. And after almost A quarter of a century in pastoral ministry, I've certainly encountered a lot of people who have this doubt in their life that God is for them. And I know this, that our default thinking, our go-to emotional response when life challenges us or overwhelms us or takes us in an unanticipated, unwanted direction often our first thought is, well then, God must not be for me. God must be 
against me. God is angry at me, and perhaps we feel that God will stay angry at us until we can do everything just right to get in his favor and get on his good side once again. There's very little doubt in denying that this is a reality in our lives. Most of us here have had this experience. And yet here's the thing. God knows otherwise. God knows what's true. God knows that he has plans for us. God knows that he has plans to prosper us, to, good, to do good to us and not to harm us and to give us a hope and a future. That's what God has for us. And God knows that these people gathered here on the plains of Moab listening to these words of Moses. He's about to give them the promised land, that abundant land flowing with milk and honey as their very own inheritance. And so what he's doing here in these chapters, he's preparing them for life in that land, teaching them truth about himself in a way that they will never forget. Because you see, God has already spoken his word to these very people. We heard it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. The Lord says to his people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. You were the fewest of the people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery and from the power of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God told him again the same truth, Deuteronomy 14. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. In case they didn't get it, God tells them a third time in Deuteronomy 26. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people his treasured possession as he promised. And though the spoken word of God should be enough for his people, God knows our frames and he knows how we are made and and the Lord himself knows that we remember far more of what we see than what we hear. For us, seeing seeing truly is believing. And so here in chapters 27 and 28, God is giving his people things to see and experiences in which to participate so that his people, as they live in the land that he's giving to you, always remember, I am your God and I am for you. And I want you to thrive in this land and I want you to prosper in this land. And I intend for you to be blessed in this land and for you to be a blessing to others. And so we see what's going on in these chapters two weeks ago. We looked at this great drama that God is setting up for his people to participate in when they enter the promised land. Remember, six tribes are to stand on Mount Ebal and six tribes are to stand on Mount Gerizim. And these six tribes are to shout the curses for disobedience to the word of God. And these six tribes are to to shout the blessing that comes for obedience. Remember, I had you stand up and I know you remember that. 
And so you all stood here and you faced these people and, and you said amen to all the curses. And you stood up on this side and you faced them and you said amen to all the blessings. And you remember it, don't you? You remember the crazy day your crazy pastor had you do that. But God is using the drama to reinforce this idea. I want blessing for you, so follow these rules. Last week, if you were here, we talked about these huge stones that God tells the people to set up and coat with plaster and write all the words of his law on it. A forever reminder of the unchanging nature of God because what are stones? They're permanent. They don't blow away. They don't wash away. They don't burn up in a fire. And so is God to his people. Always, forever, the same, unchanging, just as his word is. And so the people can look to those stones and remember the unchanging nature of God. They can remember that the grass withers and the flowers fall. Absolutely, that's true. God's people have always seen withering all around them as we see it, withering in our relationships, withering caused by chaos and turmoil and unrest and riot, plucking the petals right off of the flowers, as does disease and disaster. The grass does wither and the flower does fail, but here's the good news. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? Yes, God visually reminds his people of these realities and his character so that they can take comfort in them, so that his people, like these rocks, can be unshaken, so that they can rest secure, immovable in their faith and their trust in the Lord, so that they'll experience in a world of unrest and violence and riots and double standards and injustice that God is our rock, our fortress, our stronghold in whom we take refuge. This morning, We see that God provides more visual reminders to his people that I am for you. Look in verse 5. God says, Build there on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Don't use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with field stone and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. Build an altar, people, as soon as you get in the land, and it will remind you that I am for you. How? How does an altar remind God's people that he's for them? Well, think about what an altar is. An altar is a place where where divine existence meets human existence, like, like the plot on a graph. An alt- altar is a place where the divine and the human intersect and interact. And so if God's people ever doubt that he's for them, they can look at the altar. Here is the place. Here is a place that God will always meet with me when I come to the altar in faith, with sacrifices brought in faith. This is huge. You see how huge it is that when they move into this land that God is giving them, when they build this altar first thing, they can always remember that always it's possible because of the goodness of God to interact with him. 
And that drama on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim with the blessings and the curses, the people gathered there all together as one enormous mass group of people. But the altar, it's different. The altar is a personal place, a you and God time of interaction. And so how could God be against people when he is so ready and willing and available to meet with them? How could God be against people when he so readily receives the gifts brought by them in faith? He couldn't be against them. He must be for them. We can trace the history of God's interactions with the offerings of his people all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, we encounter Abel. And Abel brought his sacrifices to the Lord, the best of the firstborn of his flock. Those Abel gave to the Lord, and the Lord was present there. He was interacting with Abel. And Scripture says that God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice. His brother Cain did not offer rightly. He was an angry man. The Lord interacts with him as well. And God gives Cain some questions to ponder. Questions that have the potential of bringing blessing to his offerings. And so God says to Cain, why are you angry? Hmm. Cain thinks. Why am I angry? What is the source of all this anger in my heart? Jealousy? Bitterness? Rebellion? Second question, why is your face downcast? Hmm. Why is my face downcast? Why am I disheartened? Why am I sad? Why am I depressed? What, what is the source of these emotions? And where am I letting these emotions take me? Third question. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Hmm. If I do what is right, God will accept me. See, all these are questions to ponder at the altar. In the presence of God, whose life intersects with yours. And if God did not want Cain to honestly answer those questions, even at the altar, he would not have posed them. If there were not a better way for Cain to come before the Lord, God would not have offered it. And so the altar is a place for honesty with God, for heart evaluation. Look to the altar. God, who is for us, sets up what is good for us. For what will find acceptance with him. And then there's the interaction at the altar between Noah and God. After the floodwaters subsided, God called to Noah, Noah, come out of the ark, bring your family with you, and bring all the animals out of the ark with you. And, and Noah obeyed, and he came out of the ark. And what's the first thing he did? He built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Now, listen to this. The Lord smelled a pleasing aroma 
and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Do you get how amazing this altar scene is? Noah comes to the the altar of the Lord with what is completely and utterly of this world, an animal sacrifice. But on the altar, the sacrifice is transformed because that's what the altar is. It's a place of exchange and communication between God and his people. The altar is a place of transformation. And so on the altar... Noah's sacrifice moved from visible to invisible. The aroma of the sacrifice made its way to God. And in some mysterious way that we can't begin to understand, Noah's sacrifice touched the heart of God. And Noah's sacrifice evoked a response from God. Sacrifice does something in the heart of God. I don't understand it, do you? And I don't have to understand it. I can just read it and know that it's true. Noah sacrificed and God responded. The Lord appeared to Abraham. He says, to your offspring I will give this land. And so Abraham built an altar in that spot to the Lord where the human and the divine intersected The altar marked that spot. And that altar would always be a reminder of that possibility. So look to the altar and be changed because it's possible for us to meet with God. To meet with the God of the universe. Rest assured and your life will change. And while we're talking about altars, i got to fast forward. Another great altar story I can't resist. You know this story? The prophet Elijah is on Mount Carmel. Do you remember this story? And all the prophets of Baal are there as well. And so Elijah, he's bided his time. He's waited for the prophets of Baal as they called out to their gods. Their gods never responded because there are no other gods. There are none. So they shout louder. Ah! Still no response from their gods. And so these prophets began to slash themselves with spears and swords until the blood flows from them. All to no avail, their gods do not answer. So here's Elijah. Almost you can see, okay, are you guys finished? Are you finished? Good. Now it's Elijah's turn. Come here to me. And the people came to him. And they repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug this trench around the altar. And he arranged the wood, and he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the altar. And then he said to the people, fill four large jars with water and pour it all over the offering in the wood. And the people did it. And Elijah said, now do it a second time. They did it a second time. And then Elijah said, now do it a third time. Douse that offering and all the wood with water and the people did it so that the water ran down and filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward 
and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I, I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell upon the burnt wood and the sacrifice and the stones and the soil and the fire also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this interaction of the human and the divine, they fell prostrate before the Lord and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Yeah, the altar is a place where the divine and the human interact. The altar is the place where God showed Himself powerful on behalf of His people. It's the place that God reminded and comforted His people with the fact that He is the one and only true and living God. When God's people bring to the altar, when God's people bow at the altar, when God's people ponder at the altar, when God's people pray at the altar, they will know that He is God and that He is for them. And what more important truth could any people of any time possibly know but that God is God and that He is for us? So no wonder God commands His people to build an altar. It's an invitation to commune with Him, to participate in and to partner with God in transformation. It's a holy, sacred time and process that's available to His people. And so it is no wonder that God commands in Isaiah chapter 1, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Stop going through the motions. Stop playing games with God. It's a good word for us today, isn't it? Stop going through the motions. Stop playing games with God. We should ponder as God asked Cain to ponder. What are we doing here? Why are we here in worship? Are we truly here to meet with God? What offering are we bringing to the Lord? Ourselves? Have we come here to open ourselves up to His influence in our lives? Because we expect to be transformed by God into something beautiful for His glory. The altar was a sacred place. Holy transactions took place there. And this is the hope of God's people in the promised land. They can meet with God and He will meet with them. The altar reminds them of that. Worship is a sacred act. What we do now. Holy transactions take place here. Do you believe that? Holy transactions take place here. And this is our great hope. Because the cross of Christ, it's the altar where the consummate interaction 
between the human and the divine was made. Jesus hung on the cross, fully divine and fully human. And in Jesus, the divine and the human meet perfectly. So if you look in your bulletin again, you'll see what we read this morning from Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take sins away. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so on the plains of Moab, the people could have hope. When they look to the altar, you and I can have hope when we look to the cross of Christ. When we bow before the cross as they bow before the altar, when we present ourselves as living sacrifices as they presented their burnt sacrifices, the cross reminds us that God is for us, that the Father's love for us is so deep. But the altar does not just represent hope for ourselves. Finally, and very quickly this morning, let's allow the altar to have its full voice. It has more to say to us. Look in verse 6. God says there to offer burnt offerings on the altar. And burnt offerings were those that belonged completely and exclusively to God. The burnt offering was all he has. Lord, it's all yours. But now look in verse 7. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there. Fellowship offerings were different. They were divided and shared. A portion of the priest, a portion of the person giving the sacrifice, and a portion went to the needy people in the community. Because God is for his people. And God demonstrates that he's for his people by making provision for them from other people. God places us in community. God places us in family, among people who will care for us and provide for us and for our needs. And so when we look to the altar, we see that it's inward, personally. It's upward to God and it is outward to others. And in the altar are demonstrated both of the commandments that Jesus says are the greatest of all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look to the altar. Yes, there's the burnt offering. It all belongs to the Lord and it comes from my heart. The second command, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Look to the altar. There's the fellowship offering. It's given to God out of a heart from love, of love, but it's meant to be shared with those in need. The Father's love for us is deep. The altar tells us so. The cross tells us so. Jesus tells us so. 
That's why it says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So how can we look at Jesus or listen to Jesus and conclude that God is not for me? God is for us. And that's why the advice offered in that old hymn is so simple and yet so powerful. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And you'll only conclude as you look at Christ and his life and his love and his sacrifice, God is for me. So drink it in. Drink it in. God is for us. And then pour it out all over others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for knowing us so well, for knowing what we need. We are word people, words, 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 words. They're hard to grasp, Lord. They go by so quickly. The next ones come before we can even contemplate the ones who have gone before. And yet we seem to thrive on that. Give us more words and words and words. Like I've just done, Lord. And and yet, you know we need more. And so, for your people, in order that they may live well and thrive in the land that you have given to them, you give them more, you give them these pictures. Thank you for the drama of uh, Mount Ebal and Gerizim. Thank you for the picture of the stones. And Lord, thank you for the picture of the altar. All of them work together to remind us that you are our God and you are for us. You want us to prosper. You want us to thrive in you, to have a life of blessing and and to live a life that blesses others. So we thank you that you don't just tell us that. You show us that. Now make us those kind of people. We pray in response to your deep love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.